Good morning, everyone. Please open up your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. And uh, I just first off want to thank you all for your prayers. And I wouldn't be able to be here without your prayers. And I'm very thankful to be placed in this body and to be able to preach the Word of God to you. And so, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, even though we're just going over verses 1 through 2, I'm going to read through verses 1 through 5 today in the beginning. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you, and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to, ready to be revealed in the last time. Please join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this day in which you have made. Lord, I just pray today that you would bless your word unto the ears of those who listen, and that you would grant understanding unto all of us. Father, I pray that you would be glorified, and that you would speak to all of our hearts, and that, Lord, you would lead me and give me a mind of clarity. And Father, I pray that we would all be edified, and that, Lord, you would protect the seeds which are planted in the hearts of men and women and children today. Lord, we do this for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. And so, for my introduction, to start out, we're going to just look at 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 10, or verse 10. And Peter here, he says, Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, ye shall never fall. Ye shall never fall. And so, Peter here, in the second book of Peter, is commanding us to give diligence, to make sure that our calling and our election is sure. For if you do these things, you shall never fall. And what he's meaning by fall is that you can have an assurance built on your calling and election by being sure your assurance in this truth will keep you and your hope in the Lord. And so, now that we have this in our hearts we can start with our sojourning salutation, giving diligence to make sure our calling and election is sure. And so in verse 1 of 1 Peter, Peter's, it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And so this is Peter, one of the twelve apostles, and he is commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ. He is sent by the Lord Jesus Christ, to who? To the strangers which are scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And so, who are these strangers? Well, if we look at the Greek, the word strangers is called peripedimos. And this can mean someone who comes from a foreign country into a city or land to reside there by the side of the natives for a temporary time, hence a foreigner. And so in other translations, you may have pilgrim or exiles or aliens. 
And so Peter is stirring up into the remembrance of the people, the recipients of this letter, that they are not in the place which is their home. They are in amongst natives, a foreign country of people. And so notice here that these strangers are also scattered. They are also scattered. And so this word scattered in the Greek is diaspora. And this usually is, this is meant for what is converted, or sorry, this was meant for the converted Israelite in uh, Gentile countries. And it was used throughout the whole Bible in this case. And so if we take a look at John chapter 7, verses 34 through 35, Jesus says, Ye shall seek me, and ye shall not find me. And where I am, thither ye cannot come. Then said the Jews among themselves, Whither will he go, that we shall not find him? Will he go unto the dispersed, or the diaspora, among the Gentiles, and teach the Gentiles? And so Jesus, or the, Jesus was speaking to the Jews, and if he was going somewhere that was outside of the Holy Land, they were going to use this word diaspora, which was meaning that he was going out into the midst of the Gentiles. And so this was used to designate all those Jews who dwelt outside of the Holy Land in Gentile countries, and it implied that the real home of all these Jews was their Holy Land. But if we look again, or if we go to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 10 through 11. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 10 through 11. It says, Peter says, which in times past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from, from fleshly lusts, which war against your soul. And so this is the same epistle here. And Peter is reminding the recipients of this letter that they are strangers and pilgrims. But if we go before that in verse 10, of, of chapter 2, he says, which in times past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. And so we know that God in the Old Testament made a covenant with Israel, and he, or Israel was, their, it was God's chosen nation. And, and so now Peter is saying to the recipients that these people who he's writing to were not a people in the past, but are now the people of God. And so now we know that this word diaspora, the scattered, isn't only for the Jews, but it is also applied to the believers, the Gentiles also. And so now the strangers isn't just Jews, but to everyone who believes in Christ as their Lord and Savior. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17, Peter writes, And if he call on the Father who without respect of persons judges according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. Pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. And so there is no impartiality with God, and Peter here is reminding us to redeem the time, to make sure that we are spending the time of our sojourning in this land, which is not our permanent home, in fear of the Lord. And in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, Paul writes to us, for a conversation is in heaven. And if we take this word conversation, in the Greek, it can mean citizenship. And maybe in your translation today, it says citizenship. So we can read it as, for our, conversation, or for our citizenship is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in John chapter 17, verses 14 through 17, Jesus says to us, or Jesus says, I have given them thy word. And the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, 
even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. And so we are not of the world, but we are in the world. And we are sojourning here. And we are to sojourn in fear, to make every decision in the will of God. And so Peter shows us three aspects here of our adoption. Or th- Peter shows us three aspects of God's adoption operation so that we might have confidence in our adoption into God's family, which is the family of God. And so our adoption, our, the first aspect of our adoption operation is election through God the Father. Election through God the Father. And so if we look at this in 2 Peter verse 2, it says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And so this word elect in the Greek is eklektos, and it can mean chosen, selected, singled out, or picked out by God individually. And so, for instance, when we uh, go to select a president, when we go to vote, in, that, in the sense of voting, we are selecting who we want to be the president. And so, instead of us doing the choosing, here God is calling us the elect, and God himself is doing the choosing. But listen here after the word elect. It says, according to the foreknowledge of God. And so it isn't just that God randomly chose us, but it was according to something, and it was according to his foreknowledge. And so before we can get a better understanding of this word foreknowledge, we must understand what it means to really know in the Hebrew and Greek culture. If we were to know someone in the Greek, or this word to know someone in in the Hebrew, it was to have a covenant with them, that you knew them. There was a relationship, a foundation there of knowing them. But in today's culture, we might say, like, if we just see someone, we know that person, even though we never really met him. We might just say, I know him because I saw him the other day. But here, this is different. This is an intimate knowing. And so we must know this to understand what this word foreknowledge means. And so this foreknowledge in the Greek is prognosis, which meaning, is meaning foreknowing or prearrangement. That God arranged something in advance And it's not that he knew that we would just exist, but that God the Father had a personal knowledge and concern for you, an intimate, warm, and burning knowledge of you, to know you with an affection and with a resultant effect all the way in eternity past, before we even existed. And so if we look at Romans chapter 8, in Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 29, uh, Paul writes to us, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And so here we see the word foreknow in verse 29. And this word foreknow is the verb version of the same word as foreknowledge. And foreknowledge here in 1 Peter is being used as a noun. And so, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. And so now we know that the Lord knew us before the foundation of the earth and eternity past. And in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19, Paul writes, Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his. The Lord knoweth them that are his. And so, 
when we ask people today, or when we're evangelizing, or when, or when we're witnessing, we may ask, do you know the Lord? And that's not a wrong question to ask. But the true question which stands and which we must ask is, does the Lord know you? And so if we look at Matthew chapter 7, verse 23, it says, Jesus says, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. And so here we see Jesus saying, Depart from me, I never knew you. And which means there was never a foundation of a relationship. There was never a covenant made. And notice how he says, I never knew you. It wasn't that at one time in your life you knew the Lord and he knew you and then you walked away. It's that, it's not that, but it's that Jesus Christ, he never at any given point ever knew you, is what he was saying to these people on the judgment day. And so if we look at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 5. Paul writes, According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself. But why did he do this? If we, it continues to say in verse 5, According to the good pleasure of his will. According to the good pleasure of his will. And so in 1 Peter chapter 2, Verse 25, Peter writes, For ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. And so as I was studying the book of 1 Peter for this sermon, I came across this verse and it says, For ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd. And I began to think, if I was always going astray in my life, how is it that I returned back to God if I was never His. But then I realized some, if you return something, it already means that you were in possession of something and it's being brought back. And so when it says we're going astray, how is it that we returned if we were always in a state of rebellion against God? It's because it is written from the perspective of God through Peter. According to the Father's foreknowledge, we were already His, even during our rebellion, but it was only a matter of time before we returned to Him through sanctification of the Spirit. So God in eternity past already elected us and chose us, and so He saw who were His. And so when we are being brought back and returning to the Lord, that is where we get the returning from. And in Romans 8, 28 through 29, Paul writes, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And so we see here in verse 28, he says, to them who are the called according to his purpose, and those whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. And so Many may think that if that uh, or that this foreknowledge was that God looked into the future and he saw all the people that would choose God and therefore he called them the elect. Well, this isn't the case here because 
those whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. And so if we were all conformed to be, or predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, then why is there people not being conformed to the image of his son? Therefore, there is a separate group who is known by God in eternity past who are the called. In John chapter 15, verse 16, Jesus says, Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, and ordained you, that ye should go and bring forth fruit, that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. And so here we see God doing the choosing, and that we ourselves did not choose God. And so the question arises, is there unrighteousness with God? What about those whom he didn't foreknow? What about those whom he didn't elect? Well, if we go to Romans chapter 9, I'm going to read you a block of scripture, which is the answer from Paul himself. Is there unrighteousness with God? And so in Romans chapter 9, verse 9, Paul writes, For this is the word of promise. At this time will I come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by her father Isaac, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. It is said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. And so this is according to the election of God and of him that calleth. And this was before Jacob or Esau did anything in their life, before they were even born, before they did anything which was good or evil. God loved Jacob and he hated Esau. So what shall we say then? Verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Is there unrighteousness with God? Paul says, God forbid, or absolutely not. For he, for he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. Then the question arises, Paul already writing, knowing the questions which is going to rise in the minds of those who read this. Thou wilt say, in verse 19, Thou wilt say then unto me, Why does he yet find fault? For who has resisted his will? Nay, but O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same month to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory? Even us whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. And my brothers and sisters, I understand this is a hard teaching. And it, it's not easy. And it's hard to wrap our minds and to understand these things. But I want you to look in John chapter 6. John chapter 6, verse 65 through 70. Verse 65 through 70. And this is Jesus speaking. 
John chapter 6, verse 65 through 70. And he said, Therefore said I unto you, that no man can come unto me, except it were given unto him of my Father. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more, no more with him. And so Jesus is saying to the, the people which are following him, that no man can come to me except it were given to him of my Father. And disciples or people walking with him left and walked no more with him at this teaching. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, Will ye also go away? Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life, and we believe and are sure that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered them, Have not I chosen you twelve? And one of you is a devil. And this, who is, this person who is a devil is the only son of perdition, the only one which was lost, which is Judas Iscariot. And so this is the election of God the Father. And so we can move on to our second aspect of our adoption operation, and that is sanctification through God the Spirit. And so when we look here in verse 2 of 1 Peter, it says, Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and the sprinkling of blood of Jesus Christ. And so why is it that we need to be sanctified? Why is it that we need to be sanctified? Well, the word sanctified or sanctification in the Greek is hagiosmos. And this means to set apart or to set apart unto holiness and purity. In this case, it refers to sanctification before conversion rather than after. For we know that there is a sanctification after we are saved and we are adopted into the family of God that we are continually being sanctified by the Holy Spirit and being conformed into the image of Christ. But here the setting apart or sanctification is taking place unto obedience and the sprinkling of blood. And so why is it that the sanctification must take place in our life? Well, in Romans chapter 5, verse 12 through 19, or verses 12 and 19, Paul writes, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. And so when we are born into this world, we are sinners. <clears throat> it's not that we had to wait for our first action of sin to take place in our life to become a sinner, but that we were born sinners, and it was by one man's disobedience, which is a reference to the fall when Adam ate the fruit from the tree of knowledge. And in verse 19 of Romans chapter 5, Paul continues to say, For as by one man's diso disobedience, many were made sinners, and so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. And so if we go back a couple chapters to Romans chapter 3, Verses 9 through 12, Paul says, What then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise. For we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. As it is written, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way, they are all together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. And so, through Adam, all of us are spiritually dead. We have been made sinners, and death passed over all the earth. And so we have a death from our sin. And so, for example, say 
there's a man on the street and he's been there for two weeks and I were to walk up to that, that corpse and I would say to it, you need to get up, you're not looking good in you, you need to get to the hospital. He's not going to respond back to me because he's dead. He's incapable, it's not going to do anything. And so the same we are spiritually to the call of God, same we are to the truth of God, we are unable and unable to be able to respond to the call of God unless something takes place. And this is the sanctification of the Spirit. And so we must awaken to righteousness, awaken to righteousness. And so if you want to turn with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. Chapter 2, verse 13. And Paul here writes, But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation. But how? It continues to say, Through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. And so when we look here at 1 Peter chapter 2, we are being brought through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and the sprinkling of blood. But in 2 Thessalonians here, it says, through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. And so this sanctification unto obedience isn't just mere moral obedience which we are being brought to, but an obedience of faith. Because through the sanctification of the Spirit, we are also receiving a belief of the truth, which is this obedience. And so if you want to turn with me to James chapter 2, verses 14 through 20. James chapter 2 verse 14 through 20. James says in verse 14, What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, Notwithstanding, ye give them not those things which are needful to the body. What doth it profit? Even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know? O vain man, that faith without works is dead. And so, again, we're not being brought into a mere moral obedience, but we are also being brought to a faith, a genuine faith, a belief of the truth. And from this, it brings forth the obedience and it works. And it's not that our works are what are adding to our salvation, but it's that faith itself is being evidenced by those works which we carry out. And so if you want to turn with me to John chapter 6, verse 37. John chapter 6, verse 37. What does the sanctifying process look like as you are being brought to the belief of the truth and obedience? John chapter 6, verses 37, and then on to 44 through 45. Verse 37 says, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. And then on to verse 44, Jesus says, No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. 
It is written in the prophets, and they shall be all taught of God. Every man, therefore, that hath, he that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. And so the, sanct the sanctifying and drawing process is ultimately bringing us to a place where we are going to begin to repent from our sins and to turn to Christ. And so I'm going to give you an illustration. Imagine there's a man who's been working for about 45 years and he just retired and he's got all these things planned, all these plans to go travel the world and to spend time with his family. But about three months after he is retired, he begins to feel weak. And day by day, he's increasingly getting more weak and more weak. And so about four months after being retired, he starts seeing these bruises on his arm. And so he immediately goes to the doctor to figure out what is going on with him. So he's in search of a diagnosis. And so the, the doctor sees him and requests to the man that he needs to take his blood results to see what's going on. And from the blood results, he sees that they need to do further examination because it's not looking good and his blood levels are very high. And so they do further examination and they realize that he has cancer. And the doctor says, I'm sorry, sir, but this is stage four cancer. And so this man, knowing he just retired, knowing he has his whole life to be with his family and to do other things that he planned, gets this terrible news. And so he begins to weep. He begins to mourn. But then the doctor says, fortunately, in your case, there was actually a cure that was just made for your specific cancer two weeks ago. And if you just take this cure, you will be 100% healed within a matter of days. And so the man begins to just be filled with joy and rejoice because of this news in which he heard. And so the same as us, as we are in this world, we are planning things, planning to do things in the world, to do what we want, have all these things set in our minds, not knowing our state, not knowing what could be in us, not knowing the things which must need place or must need to take place in our life. And so what the Holy Spirit does is he begins to draw us to the Father or draw us to the Son. And he begins to show us ourselves. He begins to convict us of sin, show us of our sinful nature. He brings us to the law of God and, and shows us and shows that we are in need of a Savior and that we are sinners and worthy of hell. And so as the Spirit begins to draw us and bring us to the Lord, He begins to show us our diagnosis. And then from that diagnosis, we can see our need for the Savior. And so He convicts us and brings us and helps us to see our sin. And then He opens our heart and shows us the truth, which is the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Savior of the world, who will forgive of all sins to those who believe and trust in Him. In Acts chapter 16, I have another illustration about Lydia. Acts chapter 16, verses 6 through 15. Verses 6 through 15. And so this is Paul and Timothy. And it says, Now when they had gone throughout Phrygia and the region of Galatia, and were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia, after they were come to Mysia, they essayed to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit suffered them not. And they, passing by Mysia, came down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. There stood a man of Macedonia and prayed him, saying, Come over into Macedonia and help us. And after he had seen the vision, immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto them. Therefore, loosing... 
from Troas, we came with a straight course to Samothracia, and the next day to Neapolis, and from thence to Philippi, which is the chief city of that part of Macedonia and a, and a colony. And we were in that city abiding certain days, and on the Sabbath we went out of the city by a riverside, where prayer was wont to be made. And we sat down and spake unto the women which resorted thither. And a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, which worshipped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened, that she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. And when she was baptized in her household, she besought us, saying, If ye have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and abide there. And she constrained us. And so here we see that the Holy Spirit constrains and stops Paul and Timothy from going to Asia and gives Peter or Paul a vision by night and tells him to go to Macedonia. And so Paul and Timothy, being obedient, went straightly there. And so we see this drawing or this this drawing of God the Father to a different location than what they were planning. And so notice how they attended a prayer meeting and they were, met this woman called Lydia. And as Paul began to share with, with her the good news, whether he was sharing the gospel or that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, whatever he was sharing with her, her heart was opened and she believed. And when she believed, notice here in verse 15, and when she believed, she then was also baptized in her household. She besought us saying, or she was also baptized. So now we see that her heart was opened and right after we can see that she was baptized. And so through the sanctification of the spirit, there was obedience brought and the belief of the truth through the opening of the heart by the Lord and the spirit of God. And so there we see the sanctification of the spirit. And now the third aspect of our adop adoption operation is justification through God the Son. Justification through God the Son. And so, first off, we are going to go over the sealing the covenant through the blood. Sealing the covenant through the blood. And so when we look at 1 Peter chapter 2, or verse 1, chapter 2, it says, Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. And so, to understand what the sprinkling of the blood, we must first look at Exodus chapter 24, verses 3 and then 7 through 8. Verses 3 and 7 through 8. And Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord, and all the judgments. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord hath said, we will do. And verse 7 through 8 continued to say, And he took the book of the covenant and read in the audience of the people, and they said, All that the Lord hath said will we do, and be obedient. And Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord hath made with you concerning all these words. And so here Moses being the mediator of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, sprinkles the blood, not of men, but of oxen, onto the people, and it was sprinkled on all who were obedient to the covenant standard, and it was a sealing of the people into this covenant. But now if we look at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24, it reads, And to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling, that speaketh better things than that of Abel. And now we have the new covenant, and Jesus is now the new mediator between God and man. And he is the one who now 
brings forth the blood and the sprinkling to us. And so Jesus seals the new covenant in his own blood, which is applied to those who obey Jesus Christ through the sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience, so that they are brought into relationship with God. And notice here how it says, that speaketh better things than that of Abel, in verse 24 of Hebrews chapter 12. And so uh, Abel's blood, when he was uh, killed by Cain, it cried out for vengeance. But Christ, it says, better things, that of mercy and of forgiveness. Arthur Pink here says, in a quote of one of his books, the specific thing denoted by the sprinkling and contrast from its shedding is the application to believers of its virtues and benefits. The more the Christian exercises repentance toward God and faith to, toward our Lord Jesus Christ, the more will he experience the peace-speaking power of that precious blood in his conscience. The blood of Christ speaketh to God as a powerful advocate, urging the fulfillment of the mediator's part of the everlasting covenant, his perfect satisfaction to divine justice, the full discharge from condemnation purchased for his people. And so now we see that sprinkling of the blood is the application of this blood to the believers through, by the Holy Spirit. And now that we have the sealing of the covenant through the blood, we also have the remission of sins through the blood. The remission of sins through the blood. And so in 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 2, John writes, My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And so what does this word propitiation mean? Propitiation means that it was Jesus Christ who took our spot and appeased the wrath of God in our place that we would not be able to bear, but He Himself took and bare Himself. And so He is the propitiation taking our place so that we would not have to endure through the wrath of God. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And so in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, Paul writes, And almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. And so we see the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, that it was needed, because without the remission or without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so Christ himself had to die so that we could be forgiven. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, Paul writes, In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. And so this word redemption, to redeem something is to purchase something. And so if we look back to when slavery was very uh, rampant in our day, men could go to the owner and they could pay the debt for that slave that they could, and they could purchase him so that slave wouldn't have to be in bondage any longer to their master. And so what they would call that is they are redeeming the slave so that that slave could be set free. Well, here it says, in whom we have redemption through his blood, we ourselves have been set free, purchased by the blood of Jesus, and all our debts, all our sins, everything is paid for, and we no longer hold it because it was paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so now we move on to redeemed from our vain conversation through the blood. And so now we have the sealing of the covenant through the blood. We have the remission of sins through the blood, the forgiveness of sins. And now we move on to redeemed from our vain conversation through the blood. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 through 20, 
Peter writes, As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. And this word conversation can mean your behavior or your lifestyle, the things in which you're doing in your life, how you live and, what, and who you're around. It is just your overall lifestyle. And it says in verse 16, Because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Manifest in these last times for you. And so not only are we redeemed from our bondage and the forgiveness of sin, but now we are redeemed from our vain conversation, our old lifestyle. We are new people. We are set free from living in those old ways. And so what are some of these old works of the flesh or these old ways in which we used to live in after we were redeemed or before we were redeemed? In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9-11, through 11, Paul writes, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, which would be homosexuality, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, shall inherit the kingdom of God. But listen here in verse 11. And such were some of you. We were these things. But ye are washed. But ye are washed. But ye are sanctified. But ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And so the question today, have you been washed? Have you been sanctified? And have you been justified? Because when the sanctification of the Spirit comes to your life, you are brought into a covenant with God. And from that, you are washed. You are forgiven. You are sanctified, set apart to live unto holiness. And then you are also justified before God, having a right standing where the blood of Christ covers you. And now, I will share with you an illustration of twin brothers. Many years ago, there were two Chinese brothers. Though they lived together, they were very different. As is common in Chinese culture, we will refer to them as elder brother and younger brother. Younger brother was, a wild, and willful, was wild and willful. His primary interest seemed to be only pleasure and plunder. Elder brother, on the other hand, was a respectable and responsible man. He was very distressed by younger brother's behavior and often warned younger brother that he was headed for serious trouble. The elder brother truly loved younger brother, and the more younger brother laughed at elder brother, the more elder brother prayed to God for him. Very late one evening, young brother rushed into their house, calling out for elder brother and exclaiming, Help me! Hide me! I have killed a man! The police are after me! The blood, oh yes, the blood, it was on his clothes, his guilt was plain. What could he do? Where, how could he hide? Where or how could he hide? Elder brother responded, quick, change, change clothes with me. Change clothes with me. Younger brother quickly complied, the police came. There stood elder brother in the bloody clothes. He said nothing and did not resist. The police assumed that he had caught the criminal. Trials were shorter in those days since elder brother said nothing more than what was required and said nothing to defend himself. His trial was soon over, and the judge condemned him to death. 
However, the evening before his scheduled execution, he asked his jailer to provide him with the material to write a letter and to promise to deliver that letter after his death. Something about Elder Brother appealed to the jailer. He agreed to provide the necessary materials and he promised to arrange for the letter to be delivered after Elder Brother's death. The next morning, Elder Brother paid the penalty for Younger Brother's crime. A little while later, a messenger knocked on Younger Brother's door. Fearfully, he opened the door and accepted the letter. Then Younger Brother opened the letter and he cried out as he read it, What did it say? The heart of the letter was this message, Tomorrow, dressed in your clothes, I will die in your place. And, your, and you, dressed in my clothes, will live a righteous and holy life in my, in my memory from now on. Now, younger brother was up so upset that he, was, that he hardly knew what to do. He thought that just possibly his brother had not yet been executed. He rushed out to see the judge. He showed him the letter and confessed his crimes to the killing and to his cowardice. But the judge told him that his brother had already died in his place, seeing how the law had been satisfied by such a sacrifice of love. The judge declined to press any further charges against younger brother. Younger brother was free. But at what a price? How do you sp suppose his brother's sacrifice affected him? I will tell you. Younger brother saw his guilt as never before. He saw his brother's love as never before. He turned to God and he discovered that God's greater love and power through Jesus Christ could deliver him from what he had been and would enable him to live as elder brother had lived. His old friends found it difficult to believe that he had become so different when invited to give when invited to go with him where he and they had gone before, he said, In my brother's clothes, I cannot go there. He would never go there. After a life of service to God and man, he was buried and, had, and, and as he requ had requested in elder brother's clothes. Now elder brother and younger brother lived together again. That is a great true story. But God wrote a better one. God sent his son to die in your place. Jesus died to give you life and he lives to live his life in those who trust in him. So what is our response when looking at the elect after these things? What is our response as the elect as we look at these things? Well, we see here at the end of verse 2, Peter writes, Grace unto you, and peace be multiplied. Peace be multiplied. Peace, because we have been adopted as children into the family of God, where we can cry out, Abba, Father, our God. And it was all by His grace, which is something we could never earn, but God continually decided to give it freely. And so, to end this, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 22, Paul here writes to the saints of God, the elect of God. For by grace are ye saved through faith, that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Wherefore remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time ye were without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace 
who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of Parshan between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinance. For to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were afar off, and to them that were nigh, for through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints, and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye are also built together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Please join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the riches of your mercy and your grace which you have bestowed upon your elect, as you have called us out of darkness and into the marvelous light of your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, continue to cleanse our minds and our consciences with the blood of your Son, that we may walk in righteousness and in the joy of the Lord, for that is our strength. Lord, help us to be closer to you and grow us in your word. And Father, send us out to be a witness to the world and a light as we are sojourning in this darkness of a world. In Jesus' name, amen.